0: Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the draught of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. But be ye not as the horse, or as the mule, which have no understanding, and whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. You may be seated.
1: Uh, we're a little behind schedule today, and uh, it's almost time to close. So I think I'm just going to clarify right up front for my sake as much as for yours. I think I'm going to go a little overtime today. Uh, we'll talk at about 1130. I've decided to speak this morning on the subject of confession. <clears throat> and preaching and studying a series of sermons on spiritual disciplines, I... Um, created a list of potential sermons uh, way back at the beginning and uh, for some reason I've had to ask myself why I'm not sure that I've decided exactly why this subject sort of circled itself as a difficult sermon for me to preach or teach to study I think for one I don't remember ever hearing a sermon on the subject of confession, or to have a sermon that's dedicated to that subject, at least in my memory, I don't remember. And I think second and most outstandingly, the reason this sermon uh, is convicting to me is because of the how much I need it, and how much I need to understand and better understand this spiritual discipline. The original temptation in the Garden of Eden included the idea of being like God or independent. And we have this baked in desire to decide for ourselves on things like our actions and how those actions should be handled and how it, whether or not it is or could be hurtful to other people. We have this desire to be independent from, um, from that pressure or that tension and to be like God who does not have any of those pressures, who does not have any of those tensions. God decides, God knows, and we don't. And that, I think, is at least partly why it becomes a challenge for us and why for us as human beings, confession is something that is hard or difficult. We see it as threatening. A spiritual discipline, I remind you, is something that we do that teaches us something about ourselves and teaches us about God. It's a training of the soul. Several examples throughout the Bible. In the Old and New Testament, we see examples of confession, and there's um, a few illustrations of people who confessed for others. For example, the priest, Nehemiah, Ezra, Daniel, Job, and others. Especially in the Old Testament, you would see examples of illustrations and stories of people who confessed for others. And that is an interesting and a, a fascinating subject of itself that we're not necessarily going to cover this morning. There are also various illustrations and stories throughout the Bible in the Old and New Testament of individuals who confessed their shortcomings, their sins. The prodigal son, David, the tax collector, and Peter, and more. This teaching and practice of of, uh, committed believers confessing Sin, their sin, is a fascinating subject to me. I've compiled just a few illustrations of that in Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 3, Acts 19, 1 John 1 verse 9, and James five sixteen, uh, As an illustration of numerous and various other passages that teach on this same thing. Close to the beginning of the sermon here, I have some things to say about confession to God. And that's an aspect of confession that is necessary and needed. And I want to spend some time this morning, especially in the, in the middle section, which is, at least as I see it and as I prepared this sermon, uh, the part that I'd like for you to remember especially, and that is the part of confessing to others, which is also a very necessary and needed aspect of confession. Confession of failure and wrongdoing, shortcomings, sin, wounding to others. And then I want to close by looking at Psalm 32, which is the passage that was read, the text that was read here at the beginning. When I was an early teenager, I remember confessing things to my dad frequently. There was a stage of life or a time in my life where I would confess things to him, he felt like a safe person, I, th- I know he was a safe person for me to talk to, and I confessed all kinds of things, such as um, oversleeping, and um, yeah, waking up after my alarm went off, and, and, and other things. If I was unkind or rude to somebody in some way or another, my conscience was pricked, and I would confess to, to Dad. I specifically remember once confessing to my dad and saying that I was sorry for anything that I had done that may have not been quite right or something that was uh, um, a little out of kilter. I believe that there are others here this morning who remember being in that or feeling thoughts like I was going through at that time and recognized the tenderness of my conscience at that stage of my life. Well, dad recognized that too. I'm proud of him for that. He was very patient with me. But I especially remember after that particular confession where I confessed for anything that I might have done, uh, dad talked to me and gave me a little bit of theology on the doctrine of confession and I appreciate that. I don't remember much of the specific things that he said in that conversation, other than I remember uh, coming out of that discussion realizing that my standing on God is not necessarily dependent on me repeating my mistakes or verbally stating my uh, uh, shortcomings to him, even though he was my dad. And I think it's a trap and a snare that we can fall into in this, in this subject. And I simply use my own personal example as, as an illustration of that. What does a healthy practice of confession look like? How does it look? Well, here's how I think I thought as a child, as a teenager, in that stage of my life. I think I had been taught that forgiveness involves contrition or expression of sorrow um, somehow, I understood this to mean that that God would only forgive me if I demonstrated or verbalized enough of remorse or enough of sorrow for my shortcomings. If I didn't feel bad enough for long enough, then perhaps there was um, a corresponding amount of forgiveness or a less a lesser amount of forgiveness for me and I think at that time I believed that God granted forgiveness in equal measure to the quality of my confession and that is a incorrect theology a wrong understanding of confession and what it's for God's forgiveness does not depend on how we confess God's forgiveness God forgives us because of his nature He forgives us because that's who He is. It is God's nature to forgive us. Not because we enter some rare, forgivable state after some impressive confession time session. But it is my thinking that God forgives us because God is good and because God is compassionate and He's merciful and gracious, and that's why he forgives. His forgiveness is not dependent on how well or how poorly we string words together or how much we cry or any other thing. Our forgiveness and our standing with God is something that comes from him, not from things that we do to achieve that. And I'm blessed as I studied the Bible, especially the New Testament, how that it describes forgiveness as something that is given freely and fully and always. That's forgiveness from God, of course. We're not so faithful, even though we should be. And when we don't feel or sense God's forgiveness, it isn't that God is withholding forgiveness because we don't feel it. It is more likely, usually, the reason we don't feel forgiven is because we have things or understandings about forgiveness that prevent us from experiencing that forgiveness. God's forgiveness is described in the Bible as a river that flows out. And in order for us to experience that forgiveness, we need to step into that river and experience that cleansing. That river is already flowing. All we need to do is step into it. And I believe that the discipline, the action of confession, whether it's to God or to others, and I want to especially say maybe to others as much, if not more, is an action that brings cleansing and healing to us. And I'd like to especially highlight that maybe closer to the end of the sermon. Confession means the word confession in our English word, confession, implies and gives the connotation of agreement. So when you are called to let's say you commit a, a crime or you have a traffic violation or something like that your confession to that is agreeing with the charges. And so when you think of it in that way a confession is is sort of an agreement. It is it is not so much for God's benefit. Confession is not so much for God's benefit. It is more for us. Confession is for our benefit. We get something out of it. And acknowledging and taking responsibility for my failures. Allows me and puts me in a position where I can experience. And, and conscientiously enter that state of, of forgiveness. And freedom from God. And with God. And move forward without Those crushing shackles of shame and guilt that want to press in on us. Those are things that come from Satan, not from God. And I've learned that confession is, again, is not about convincing God to forgive me. But it's more about letting God shine a light on us, on our path, on our heart, and on our direction. In fact, I am quite convinced as I study this that confession is not so much about the past as it is about my present and my future. When I confess, whether it's to God or to others, I am demonstrating an openness and a desire in my heart for the next step of faith, for a a higher level of understanding about what he wants for me and what he is intending for my life. Not only for the past, but for the present and the future. I'd like to especially leave that with you as we go through the rest of the sermon. It focuses more on my present and on my future, not so much, even more, than it does on my past. Confession, I believe, is a conscious reconnection with God. It inspires me, it motivates me to set my standards higher. It's like a line in the sand that I draw. When I confess, it establishes a fight line. It stirs up a desire for me To to create better and more healthy boundaries in whatever area of life that that I'm dealing with. So now we're going to move into the three themes for this sermon. And I'm going to go kind of fast like I said. And so we'll transition from these maybe not even completely noticeable. Themes for the practice of confession. Themes for this sermon that I want to leave with you today. Number one, to take responsibility for our actions, our attitudes, and our words. Secondly, to be set free from the shame, the unworthiness, and the tension that accumulates when we, and I want to emphasize that word, when we make foolish, selfish, or harmful choices. Thirdly, to open our lives to the healing presence of God and invite God's transformative power into our acknowledged areas, or our stated, or the the things that we verbalize as imperfections, struggles, and weaknesses. So how do we take responsibility? How can I take responsibility for my actions, my attitudes, and my words? How, How is it done? How does it look? I have seven A's of confession. And this is especially to other people. Number one, we need to address those involved. We need to talk to the people that are directly involved in the incident. Now, I'm going to talk about this just a little bit later, but there are perhaps times where it is better and wiser to talk to other people, to confess to other people about things that we have done. Uh, other than the people that are directly involved. But usually, usually, even in that situation, there comes times where we have created harm and wrong, where we have hurt other people with our words and actions, and at some point, there needs to be discussion with those people. Talk to them about the incident. Do it soon. Be persistent about getting to that point. Address the people that are involved. And sometimes, I think this point involves public confession, which I think is, again, establishing a fight line. It's establishing a line in the sand, creating a boundary for ourselves and for our group. Address the people that are involved, and especially address them. Put a premium on addressing them, not necessarily other people that become sucked into the problem, but address the people. Apologize, express sorrow for what you did. Use words like, I am sorry, express brokenness, realize that there was damage done, that there was harm done, as a result of my actions. I was wrong. Use those words. Plain and simple, honest, no evasions. Thirdly, say what you did. State what you did. Admit it specifically. And I want to add here, when possible, are there dangers of confession? Yes, there are. And uh, there, I think sometimes they're substantial. I think people that are, for whatever reason, emotionally needy, maybe even sort of like I was in, in my teen years, there may be times where, where we apologize or we confess for the purpose of getting attention for ourselves, and we use the medium of confession to, to get that. And sometimes I've witnessed public confessions, especially Testimonies under that category that are actually a, a used as a way to manipulate the audience, to, to handcuff a captive audience into relating a whole bunch of details that have nothing to do with, uh, with regret. And sometimes, sometimes, yeah, again, I've heard testimonies that make me wonder if the person is actually even sorry for what was done. I think confession can stoop to exhibitionism. It's sort of a perverted pleasure of airing my dirty laundry. Confession, I think, can also be used as a vehicle for spiritual aggression. For instance, if you experience jealousy or bitterness toward a person, that person may be completely unaware of your feelings toward them. And if you go to them and you say, Brother, I've been jealous toward you, it can actually create A spiritual assault on that person. I think I'm just saying this to say that there are ways that that we need to be discerning and wise in all of this. But most times, especially when there is conflict and you know there's conflict and you know the other person knows there's conflict, it is your responsibility according to scriptures to go and seek to clear that up and name the wrongs that you did. If you don't know what you did, sometimes I think it's important to ask what you did, perhaps through a series of meetings, through a series of conversations. You become aware of what you did, and you need to admit or to accept responsibility for that. Name what you did to the other person. The other party might be 99% wrong, but in an honest, sincere confession, your responsibility is the 1% that you did. It's about the log that you, that's in your eye. You're the part of the problem. And confess that. Avoid using words like if, or but, or maybe. That's just a way of projecting blame, or blame shifting. And we say, if I, was, if I offended you, or if I said something that, was, that you didn't like, I'm sorry. Or maybe I was wrong in this situation. If you hadn't said that, then I wouldn't have said what I said. Blame shifting. I'm sorry, but you, whatever it was. Another form of this is is to, to say, when you did or said something that was hurtful, you dismiss it and you say, oh, I was just joking. It was just a joke. Avoid using words like that. Take responsibility for what you did. The fifth thing I have here is ask how you can make it better. And I think this is, at least maybe in our culture, but a lot of people in general leave this out of the process. Ask if there are boundaries that they would like for you to respect. If you have done something that is wrong or hurtful or harmful to another person, bring it up. Ask them if there are things that you can do moving forward that help them, that help bring healing. What are the boundaries that they want you to honor? Sixth, accept the consequences. Make restitution. It's what you ought to do as a Christian. Do not ever expect, do not ever demand that the other person pretend that nothing happened. Do not ever expect that the other person should go forward, move forward as if nothing ever happened, nothing transpired. That's neither accurate, and neither is it acceptable. Accept the consequences. Don't cover your sin. Confess it. That's what true Christians do. The seventh A is alter your behavior. Kind of simple enough, isn't it? Change your ways. In Luke chapter 15, on the story of the prodigal son, you have a beautiful picture of what confession actually is. The prodigal son, and I should probably take the time to look at this just a little bit, but I want to especially highlight a few of of how he changed his ways. Okay, the Bible says that when he was in the pig pen, when he came to the end of himself, he also simultaneously came to himself, and he started to realize what he had done. And it says, He arose. And came to his father. And he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven in thy sight. And he changed his ways. He changed his attitudes. He changed his actions. And if you expect to say, you're sorry, and keep right on doing what you've been doing. To continue those actions, either with the person that was originally involved or with others. That doesn't qualify as confession. Being unwilling to engage in confession is sort of like setting out in the sun for a while, for too long. The sun feels great for a while. But if you exceed that, you're going, it's something that's going to be detrimental to your health. You're going to feel it, both in the short and long term. And we know that sin and conflict builds walls. It thrives in isolation. The longer that you can keep something secret, the better it feels to our flesh. But along with that, sin also keeps us from maturing. Those very same items of conflict, whether it's relational conflict or sin conflict, struggles with God and others, When we confess, what we're doing is stepping out of isolation. We're rejecting this thought or this idea that we get to judge, that we are in charge, that we are independent of others. And when we become vulnerable and when we state our wrongs, whether it's to the person involved or to to other one-on-one settings, it provides a release from this isolation. It provides accountability. The idea of stepping one higher, bringing maturity into our lives. The desire for redemption is something that God has also placed in our minds and in our hearts. And it's easy for us, when, when there is something to confess, to forget and to, to not think about that desire, the desire for redemption. And I think it's important for us to train ourselves. And I think when we f- fall into this habit of confession, and we fall into the habit of no longer isolating ourselves. We can understand what it means and what it is to genuinely feel that level of freedom and release. The desire for redemption. <clears throat> now we all sin. That's no secret. Every one of us freely and and frequently, no, we're reminded of that. We know that we have struggles. We know that we have shortcomings. And we, we also know that others do. In fact, we see it in other people's lives. We rub shoulders with them, and we see that they have shortcomings. We see that they have weaknesses. And we want to grow closer to God, to live in the freedom of Christ. We want to break down those walls that hinder us from a deeper and a, more, a higher relation with God. And one of the ways when we withhold confession, is that we, we create a, a, a stop or a barrier in taking that next step, that understanding of, of what it means to, to walk in that freedom. Again, we all have these weaknesses, and yet when we fail, we're, we're, we're lied to by Satan and, and One of the lies that Satan brings us to us is that others will think less of us, and it's usually almost always otherwise. Confession requires bravery and boldness and humility, but the rewards are really incalculable. When we witness other people living a life that rejects sin's power, it gives us courage, and therefore also enter into that like confession. I think there's very few times that I remember people giving sincere, honest confession where their honesty and their authenticity didn't also bring a change to me. It brought a change to to our community. I remember uh, maybe some public confessions here at church at different times and It it inspires others. It motivates others. It creates, like I said, a fight line for that individual and maybe for the entire group. I think it's possible for the face of an entire community. Let's just say our church. There's times where the face of the entire community can change by one confession. I want to talk just briefly about what confession does for us, will do for us. How can I be set free from the shame, the unworthiness, the tension that accumulates when we make foolish and selfish and harmful choices? I think I've already talked about that. How can I open my life to the healing presence of God and invite that power into my areas of weakness and and struggle in my life? Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. I thought I had another slide here. There's three areas of healing that I think especially are part of confession. And they're sort of basic and sort of things that I have already implied or said. First of all, confession is the pathway to forgiveness and cleansing. The Bible says in verse, 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think that's specifically talking about confession to God, but the same applies to others. So Proverbs 28.13, when we confess our sins... We're the ones that get mercy. The pathway to forgiveness, the pathway to healing, the pathway to cleansing is through the action of confession. And secondly, I think confession has to do with our physical health. And I find this stunning as I think of it and, and, and studied on it. And I'm not going to say very much other than to just remind you of the passage in James 5.16 where it talks about physical Spiritual and emotional need for healing, and it talks about calling the elders of the church and practice the practice of anointing with oil. And it says in that passage that if we are, if if we confess our sins one to another, if we pray for each other, there's going to be healing. And he goes on in the next, in that same verse or in the next verse. And he says, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That idea of a righteous man has the idea of a a delivered person. Confession. And a connection with our physical health. The third thing is that confession sets us free from habitual sins. I've already used this. I've already talked about this somewhat. But just to remind us uh, again, confession draws a fight line. It's, it's, it frees us from, it has the ability to, to change our habits. When we verbally and actively state the things that are bogging us down, it creates a line in the sand. And we tend not to cross that line because, yeah, yeah, we've, we've established the line of fight in that particular area. Confession breaks the chain of events and releases us to become people that fulfill God's purposes in our lives. Now, I've come full circle, and in these last, uh, as I close here, I want to remind us that our failures and our shortcomings and our sins basically always involve other people. And they cause conflict in relationships, sometimes Sometimes those conflicts are just almost unexplainable and almost impossible to understand and to wrap our, our fingers, our understanding around that. But ultimately, all sin is against God. And in Psalm 32, I love this psalm for several reasons. It talks about covering up sin. And usually, we refer to covering sin as a negative thing. The reason we talk about covering sin is because it is the fact that we are the ones covering it. We're the ones that are hiding it. But how about putting a positive side to covering of sin, which actually Psalm 32 does? And he says, let God cover it. Place that sin under God's covering, the covering that he provides, the hiding. Place that he provides. Psalm 32 sort of divides pretty handily into three or four sections. And we notice the word Selah come up at various times. I think that's sort of a break in the. It's a musical term, uh, as I understand it. And it, yeah, like I said, this psalm sort of divides into about three or four sections. And it talks about the blessings that are experienced when God covers our sins. Secondly, Psalm 32 also talks about the burdens that we bear or the harm that is brought to ourselves when we cover our sins. And then thirdly, it talks about the benefits that you receive when you take cover in God. When you make God your hiding place, God surrounds you with his unfailing love, which is what is talked about there mercy, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, verse 10 but he that trusteth in the Lord mercy or unfailing love shall compass him about and verse 11 David closes this psalm by talking about being glad in the Lord, by rejoicing ye righteous shouting for joy, all ye that are upright in heart, it has the idea of the correct actions, the correct procedures are in place there's free freedom, there's clarity there's transparency, there's vulnerability and that's the heart that can rejoice so as I close I ask you some basic and rather simple questions who is covering your sin are you covering your sin or trying to cover it or have you allowed God to cover that sin Are you privy to the same temptation that Adam and Eve were, and you're still trying to be like God and control the judgment, control the consequences, control the thoughts or the motives of other people? Or have you given that control over to God? Have you asked God to cover your sin? Have you uncovered your sin by allowing God and others to see into your life? Are you the picture of transparency? Are you living in that freedom? Or are there things that you're trying to hide? Forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus Christ alone. Take cover in him. Trust in Jesus. Psalm 32 verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I invite you, if you're able, to kneel with me in prayer. Lord, our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We come to you in realization of our need and our need for grace and our need for wisdom and guidance. I pray, Lord, that you would fulfill your promise to us, that you will give that to us in, in abundant ways and abundant measures. I pray that you would place in all of us a heart of humility and a desire and anticipation of what you can bring into our lives if we're willing to um, allow you to take charge or to cover our sin. Forgive us for the times where we try to cover our sin, where we try to control the narrative, where we try to um, control the consequences. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to reveal in all of us the desire that you have put in us to find that freedom in you. And I pray that we would follow that desire and that we would find that freedom that comes from you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.